Welcome to Present Value. Hey listeners, I'm Serena Alavia, a producer on the team here at Present Value. We're excited to share a great conversation with applied mathematics professor Steven Strogatz and Michael Brady, our host for this episode. The conversation focuses on his new book, Infinite Powers, How Calculus Reveals the Secrets of the Universe, due out in April 2019. And we also discuss his research on circadian rhythms and small world networks. We hope you enjoy the episode, and as always, subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at PresentValuePod. Professor Stephen Strogatz is the Jacob Gould Sherman Professor of Applied Mathematics and Stephen H. Weiss Presidential Fellow at Cornell University. He earned a bachelor's degree in mathematics from Princeton, went on to study as a Marshall Scholar at Trinity College, Cambridge, and then earned a PhD in applied mathematics from Harvard University for his work on the dynamics of the human sleep-wake cycle. Strogatz's research has covered a broad range of topics, including the geometry of supercoiled DNA, and collective synchronization of biological oscillators. He is well known for his 1998 paper he co-authored called Collective Dynamics of Small World Networks, which has over 37,000 citations and is one of the most cited papers of all time. Strogatz is also known publicly as a communicator of mathematics. He has given a popular TED Talk called The Science of Sync and written several popular books, including The Joy of X, From One to Infinity. Professor Strogatz, thank you so much for joining us on Present Value. Thank you. It's great to be here, Michael. We're going to get into some of your earlier work on small world networks and circadian rhythms, but I wanted to start by discussing your upcoming book, Infinite Powers, How Calculus Reveals the Secrets of the Universe. Um, Maybe we could start with, who is this book for? I'm imagining a few different audiences. So there's the audience of people who took calculus. Every year, something like about a million Students in the United States alone take calculus. That includes high school students in advanced placement courses, college students in their freshman year maybe taking the first course in it. So there's a million students going through the pipeline every year. And just by the nature of the way we teach calculus, there's so much to cover, so many techniques to learn, so many little theorems to master, that um, the professor or the teacher often feels like, I got to cover all this material. It's a rush. And what gets left out is the human side of the story. Who were the people who invented it? Why did they invent it? What were their struggles? What were the problems they were trying to solve? And also, why does it matter? You know, people like my dad, for instance, who didn't go to college and grew up in the Depression, you know, he didn't have any money, and the idea of college was unthinkable at that time. Um, And he went into World War II, and he was uh, stationed in the South Pacific where he repaired engines for B-24 bombers. He was in New Guinea, you know, and then these bombers would go fly over Japan and do their thing. And anyway, so they, the Army taught him about mechanics of how to repair engines. So somewhere along the line, he started to get the idea that calculus was important. You know, like if a fighter plane starts coming in to attack a battleship, there are anti-aircraft guns that are going to be swiveling around, shooting at that plane as it's taking evasive maneuvers. And it's all happening automatically. There are automatic control systems that tell the guns where to aim somehow estimating how the plane is moving. And you can imagine, this is a complicated math problem. So my dad didn't know the math that would go into that kind of thing. I mean, I remember as a little boy asking him, 
something about math. And then he said, you know, someday maybe you'll go to college and you can learn calculus. And I wondered, well, what's calculus? And he didn't really know, but he told me this thing about the anti-aircraft guns. You know, so I can imagine that there are many possible um, readers out there who have heard of calculus. They know that it's a big subject. It's probably one of the most famous, and people see it as like a pinnacle of math. What is it really? What is it? Why does it matter? And, you know, even if a person took calculus, unlike my dad, as I say, that because they were in a course that was so rushed with all the technical side of it, they probably don't have much feeling for its significance in shaping Western culture. I mean, I actually believe that calculus is one of the greatest ideas of all time and um, that it remade the world. It made the world modern. And so that's the goal of the book is to help anyone, whether they've taken calculus or not, understand what its big ideas are, where it came from, and how it changed the world. I like that you mentioned the human element of the story. I'll admit that when I think about that, I think about some kind of controversy between Newton and Leibniz. I understand that in the book, though, you tell a different story. Maybe we could get into that story and how the Newton and Leibniz story isn't exactly right. Well, we should certainly talk about those two fine gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Because they are heroes in the story. Isaac Newton, born on Christmas Day, 1642, in, in a little farmhouse in England. And um, four years later, another gentleman, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, born in Germany. The two of them are often considered the co-inventors of calculus. And a good case could be made that that's true. It's also true, as you mentioned, that uh, there was a, what to call it, a rivalry, a dispute between them. Did they you know, did they invent it separately? Did Leibniz steal calculus from Newton, as some people say? That's often the story that, that people focus on when they think about the invention of calculus. It's a juicy story of, you know, this bitter dispute and two great geniuses going at it in this feud. So I do sort of tell a version of that story, but I tend to think it gets too much attention um, because we now know what the reality is that both of them thought of it independently. And, um, they're both interesting characters, so I do like to, I can't resist telling those stories in the book, too, and we could talk about them now if you want. But actually, the subject of calculus was going strong for about 2,000 years before that. And that's a part that seems to be lost in the mists of history. Not really sure why it's, it's told the way that it is told. But um, even back as far as something like 250 BC in ancient Greece, we can see a genius of the same stature as Newton and Leibniz named Archimedes who um, you can see in his work, he's got all the ideas of the half of calculus that we call integral calculus. He really understands it all, except he's very limited because he doesn't have the numbers that we have now. You know, he doesn't have decimals. Just think about like Roman numerals, the type you see on a clock, you know, with the X and the V. And the, it was very hard to do arithmetic in the days of that kind of number system. Decimals weren't even really invented until you know, like something like 800 years after Archimedes in India. So he doesn't have decimals, but he also doesn't have algebra because that's, as the name suggests, an Arabic concept, algebra. That's also coming much later. So it's like he's trying to do calculus with both hands tied behind his back. All he's got is geometry and his mind. Yet, because his mind is so stupendously wonderful, he's able to think of a lot of the basic ideas of calculus. Why did it take so long to make the jump from Archimedes and maybe Euclid to then calculus mm -hmm. in the late 1600s, mm -hmm. like you said? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting historical question. And, well, there are a few things that happen. I mean, so for one, 
the Greeks got taken over by the Romans. And the Romans, you know, as we, I think we all know, are, well, they're, they're interested in murdering and conquering and enslaving is what it looks like to me. That's not the usual way of describing the Roman Empire. But um, that's what they're all about. They were great at armies. They were great at architecture and, and uh, engineering. So, you know, you can still see Roman roads and Roman aqueducts and all that, but it's all to keep the empire going and to exploit and steal and murder. That's what it looks like to me. <laughs> I mean, there's some great poetry and some great drama. You know, they, they produce plays. They've got great orators and that kind of thing. But you can't really name a single great Roman mathematician. They're not interested in that. That's a little too, what, I don't know, is it a sissy activity? Is it a, um, it's a kind of the thing that the Greeks would do, but we don't really do that here? I don't know what it is with them. It's funny because math is profoundly useful, and you'd think with this utilitarian, militaristic approach that they're interested in taking, they'd have plenty of use for math. But maybe that was the point. Maybe the Greek math was so good that they could just use it, and they didn't feel the need to go beyond it. They don't seem to have been super curious about intellectual things in the mathematical realm. So, okay, I'm making up a lot of pop history there, but <laughs> I'm not a historian. So I don't really know the answer, but for whatever reason, there's virtually nothing happening during the Roman periods from, you know, a few hundred B.C. to like 500 A.D. zilch in, in advances in math beyond Archimedes. So that's part of it. Then there's the so-called Dark Ages when the Roman Empire has fallen. And at that point, Greek learning shifts to the east. So it starts to be preserved in places like Constantinople and Baghdad and Cairo, you know. So a lot of the great ideas are not lost. They're still out there, but they're not part of the Western world, which is in a period of decline. So the, then there's the golden era of um, Islam, you know, and Islamic learning and like say 800 AD, and there, that's around the time that algebra starts really getting going. And eventually, um, these ideas make their way back to Europe around 1200, and then algebra starts to be imported through Spain and comes up through Morocco, and eventually Europeans start to learn this fantastic way of working with symbols, representing numbers a little more abstractly than as just numbers. And then the renaissance of um, ideas, you know, Greek ideas are rediscovered, then the stage is set for calculus. I, of course, I haven't really said, maybe we should go back a little bit. What's the point? Like, what is this thing, calculus? Why was even Archimedes interested in it in 250 BC? And, and so let me give a little hint of that. Not so easy to do without visual aids, but I think you can picture in your head the problem of thinking about the area inside a circle, right? Something we all did in high school. We, we memorized a formula, pi r squared, for the area of a circle that has a radius r where um, the radius means the distance from the center of the circle out to the rim of the circle. Anyway, we memorize this formula, but um, what's it about? I mean, the issue is, if you wanted to measure how much area is contained inside a circle, it's not so easy to really, like, suppose you didn't know this formula. You know, how would you do it? Suppose it was like an experimental problem. How would you measure the space? The issue being that it's a curved shape. Like if I ask you the area of a square or a rectangle, people know how to do that. If it was a four by five rectangle, you know to go four times five is 20. It would be 20 square units of whatever, meters or inches or whatever you're using. And that's a practical thing we use when we want to know the area of a carpet or the area of somebody's field. I mean, that's where these questions came up. So areas of things with straight sides like squares, rectangles, triangles, those things were known for a long time all around the world, even well before the Greeks, people knew the areas of 
those kind of shapes with, with straight edges on them in Egypt and in Mesopotamia. And they were useful for taxation. You know, it has a practical purpose. That is, if the king wants to charge you tax for how much land you have, because you're a farmer, you want to know how big your farm is, and that's going to be measured by the square footage or acreage or whatever. And so the area question was important for financial and essentially tax reasons. Now, it's not like people had circular fields. So, so then the question of why would you want to know the area of a circle? Is it for tax? No, not really. People don't have circular shaped fields. But there were intellectuals who wanted to know area because it was an interesting math problem just for human curiosity. You know, this has been true throughout history that we get curious about things that aren't necessarily practical, but we just want to understand them. And that was sort of the big question for the ancient mathematicians is finding the area of a shape that doesn't have straight sides. Circle being the prime example, because people were always interested in circles. They saw them as symbolic of perfection and symmetry. And yeah, you know, and you can look in someone's eyes, you see circles right there. You see, I'm staring at you, right? I see your pupil and your iris, it looks like a circle. Or you can look up at the sun or the moon and those look like circles. So anyway, people were interested in circles forever. And the question of what's the area of a circle was hard because there are no squares or triangles in the circle. Today, you could imagine drawing a circle on graph paper and counting all the little boxes. And it would give you an approximation to the area of the circle, but you realize that those little boxes don't exactly mesh perfectly with the curved part of the circle, right? They hang over the edge a little bit, or they don't quite, you know, that's the thing. They don't, they don't comport well with the curvature of the circle. No matter how small the boxes yeah, are. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. You can make the boxes very small and you'll get very close to hugging the circle, but you'll still, you know, even when people use this expression about you can't fit a circle into a, what is it? A, a round peg in a square hole or something like that, or a square peg in a round square hole. Square peg round. <laughs> that ancient idea captures something that, that there's something incompatible about circles and squares. Anyway, it was an ancient mystery how to find the area of a circle, and the first person to figure out the answer was this guy I mentioned, Archimedes. And this formula, pi r squared, that we're all taught comes from him. He's the first to figure out a way of reasoning about the circle, and how he does it is very close to what we just talked about with the little squares in the graph paper. He, he has this insight that if he thinks about tiny shapes, he can get closer and closer to approximating a round thing with lots of little straight things. And it's, it's this idea that you have to think about many, many small objects to approximate a curved shape leads him to the idea that he can actually go beyond approximation and get the exact answer if he uses infinitely many rather than just many small things. And if he makes those small things infinitesimally small rather than just small. So this is the big idea at the heart of calculus. The, and that's why the book is infinite powers. And in the book you discussed, I think he did like slices of pizza-ish. Right. right. He does. He has a way of slicing the circle, the circular area, in just like you would with a pizza, into lots of pizza-shaped slices, which in math we would call sectors. And then he has a way of rearranging the sectors with sort of like one pizza slice has its point up, and then the next pizza slice is sort of tipped upside down, so it's pointing down. If you alternate them with the pointy part up and pointy part down, you can fit the slices together of the whole pizza to make something that looks a little bit like a rectangle. And if you do that with infinitesimally thin slices and infinitely many of them, you can actually make a perfect rectangle. And so that kind of argument, but except much more careful, he uses to derive the formula that we all learn now in high school. 
It's amazing he did that with that algebra. I, algebra is so deep in my head about what math is. I can't imagine how these people would approach these problems without algebra. I don't. It just doesn't come it's, Yeah, it's just the way that we've been taught. The way that school is taught nowadays leans very heavily on algebra. It's interesting, those people out there listening who are thinking about their high school education, remember how much algebra you took. You had algebra one, you had algebra two, you probably had something called pre-calculus, which is almost the same thing as algebra. It's really just another name. And there's so much algebra because it's extremely powerful, but there's a certain sterile or left brain aspect of it. It's not visual. For many people, it's meaningless and very abstract. And so this is a trade-off we often have in math where things that are abstract are often abstract for a reason. They're very powerful and they're very general. They apply to many things because they're sort of not about anything. But for those of us who like to picture things, it's discouraging because there's nothing to picture in algebra. It's only when you marry algebra to geometry that then you get the thing that makes modern math possible. The early 1600s, Descartes in France, René Descartes, and um, another French mathematician, Pierre Fermat, invent the fusion of algebra and geometry that we now call analytic geometry. And that's really the big subject of pre-calculus. That's fascinating. Um, Maybe I could read a passage from your book and uh, hear your reaction. Art, said Picasso, is a lie that makes us realize truth. And then you go on. The same can be said for calculus as a model of nature. In the first half of the 17th century, calculus began to be used as a powerful abstraction of motion and change. In the second half of that century, the same kind of artistic choices, the lies that revealed the truth, prepared the way for revolution. Can you comment on that? Well, I remember hearing this Picasso quote somewhere, and I was struck by the idea that lies can bring you to the truth, and that that's, at least in Picasso's mind, the essence of art that there's always a little bit of a lie in art in that you leave things out, you make choices. Certainly it's clear in the Impressionist era, you know, when you see, say, Seurat painting with dots. You know, if you look closely, the picture is all dots. And yet when you back off from a distance, you start to see a very colorful scene of maybe people sitting on a riverbank or something like that. And this idea that you can somehow get at at beautiful truths by making approximations that amount to lies. It's an interesting and deep idea that that is also very much a part of the spirit of math. I mean, let's bring it down to earth. When I talk about a straight line, there are no straight lines in nature. A straight line is a lie. Because if if you imagine what a mathematician means by a straight line, it's something that's got no thickness and it goes on forever and it's perfectly straight. And if you try to draw a very straight line with a pencil that's a very sharp pencil, you know, it looks pretty good. But if you look at it under a microscope, it's clearly not straight. It's all, you know, got graphite specks all over the place. And if you looked even with a better microscope, you would see all kinds of molecules jiggling around and the line isn't even standing still on the page. It's vibrating. And, you know, so the idea of a of a straight motionless line, which we have no problem imagining in our heads, is actually a lie. There is no such thing in nature. And, and math is full of stuff like this where we imagine a world that is more perfect than our world, where circles are perfectly round and lines are perfectly straight. And the reason we do it is aesthetic, just like in art. It's more beautiful. That world is more beautiful than our world. It's also not so different from our world. You know, when you look at the pyramids, that sort of looks like they have a straight line going from the bottom to the top along the edge. So, so these are lies that help reveal the truth. That's what Picasso is talking about, and that's what I'm arguing in the book, at least in that passage, that 
Sometimes in calculus, when we imagine, like say, that you can keep dividing time into finer and finer units of time instead of milliseconds, you can go to microseconds or nanoseconds, and you can just keep chopping time in your mind until it's an infinitesimal time interval. That kind of thing is very important in helping us figure out how objects move, how people run, how the planets go around the sun, you know, how in my dad's example with the anti-aircraft guns, the control of those guns to make sure that they're targeting the fighter planes relies on this abstraction that we can chop time infinitely finely. And it makes the guns work, yet it's not really true. It's a lie that reveals the truth. As I understand it, maybe there was like a hand wave that was done by Archimedes and by Newton in Leibniz and that, you know, they didn't rigorously prove how to do some of these approximations and everything, but they knew it was true. So they did the hand wave to then do the approximation. Something like that, yes. It's been a very hard problem in the history of math to make the intuitions about infinity and infinitesimals rigorous. Infinity leads to lots of paradoxes. They were aware of that. Aristotle, before Archimedes, 300 or so, 400 BC, ran into so many problems in thinking about infinity that had come from an earlier generation from a mathematician and philosopher named Zeno, that there was a feeling at the time that infinity was dangerous and potentially misleading, that it could lead you astray. And so best not to ever talk about infinity again in math. And that edict sort of held sway for centuries because Aristotle, as we all know, is very influential. But there was always a kind of um, underground movement <laughs> that would insist on thinking about infinity because it was, as I said, with the case of the circle example, just so tremendously powerful in, in solving questions that you couldn't solve any other way about curved shapes at first and then later about things that were moving in a complicated fashion, like things do move on the earth, the way that objects fall or the way that birds fly or you know, the way the wind blows or anything. We're used to motion in our lives, but for a long time, humanity couldn't understand things that move in any precise mathematical or scientific way. And you, and you couldn't really make sense of it without infinity. Let's get into some of the motion and Zeno's paradox, if that's sure. okay. In Infinite Powers, you discuss Usain Bolt setting the record for the 100-meter dash uh -huh. in Beijing in 2008. So he ran the 100 meters in 9.69 seconds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and after you do a bunch of conversions, that's an average of 23 miles per hour. Yeah. And it makes sense when you think about it. So you run a distance, you record the time, and then you figure out the average speed over that distance. But of course, we really want to know what's his instantaneous top speed, right? How fast did he really run? And you get into this story in your book. So how does calculus help explain all this? Well, right. So we, when we, if we remember that race, some of the people hearing this may not remember it or may not have even been born at the time he did this. But, you know, Usain Bolt shot out of the blocks that night, and he, he always sort of was behind. That was just the nature of the way he ran. He was not the first guy out of the blocks. In fact, he was, in this case, number seven out of eight. So he got a relatively slow start. And it makes for good drama because you see all these other sprinters ahead of him at 10 meters and 20 meters out of the 100 meters to go. And so he's in the back of the pack, but he's very long-legged guy and has a tremendous stride, and he just starts gaining. And then by like 40 or 50 meters, he's ahead of everybody. And by 80 meters, he's so far ahead that when he looks around, he can't even see anybody. Um, and at that point, he relaxed and put his arms down and then later did a chest thump as he crossed the finish line. So it's fun. You could watch it on YouTube. You could see this Beijing 100-meter dash. It's an unbelievable performance. 
So it led people to ask all kinds of questions like, how fast did he go? Not just his average speed, but what was his fastest? Because that would be the fastest any person has ever run. You know, how fast was it exactly? That was a natural question to ask. People also wondered if he hadn't eased up at the end, how fast could he have gone? I mean, that was an interesting little theoretical problem. Could we extrapolate if he had kept running hard all the way to the end instead of celebrating with 20 meters to go? Take his top speed and extrapolate that Well, out. that's the question. You know, what's the, what would be the right way to extrapolate it to make a prediction? And so at the time in, in 2008, people were predicting if he really ran his hardest, could he run 9.5? Um, and then anyway, we got the answer to that a year later because the World Championships in Berlin were held in 2009. And that time he didn't fool around, and he ran, I think, 9.58, so, which I believe might still be the world record. But as far as what does it have to do with calculus, this question of what was his peak speed, um, you know, how would you actually answer that? If you had a radar gun on him, you know, like the kind that police use when they're trying to measure the speed of a speeding car, that would answer the question scientifically. But as it happens, we didn't have a radar gun on him that night. We have videotape of him running the race doesn't allow for such easy estimates of his top speed. But in any case, if you imagine the thought experiment, like if we knew where he was on the track at every moment, you could measure the distance he traveled, say, every tenth of a second or hundredth of a second, and um, just divide that distance, divided by a hundredth of a second, and convert that to a speed. Um, That would work, except that still only gives you his average speed over that hundredth of a second. So what you really want to do is somehow figure out what is his distance traveled over an extremely short, shorter than a hundredth of a second. And this, this leads to the idea of an instantaneous speed. What is the distance traveled in a, an infinitesimal amount of time? It'll be some infinitesimal advance of distance, but um, the ratio of those two things, the change in distance over the change in time, that's what we would call his instantaneous speed at each moment. And it's, it's the kind of thing that GPS devices calculate or that your speedometer in your car or even your bicycle can deal with, though they're approximating if they're not giving you a true instantaneous speed. I really enjoyed your discussion of Zeno's paradox, and you brought up another one of Zeno's paradoxes called Zeno's arrow. Could you give our listeners a brief lesson on Zeno and then get into Zeno's arrow? Sure. Yeah, Zeno is one of the ancient Greek philosophers, and I really do mean ancient. He's before Socrates. You know, there's this standard progression you hear. Socrates taught Plato. Plato taught Aristotle. Those are sort of the big three. But um, before Socrates, there were, they call them the pre-Socratic philosophers, and there are all kinds of them. They don't tend to leave us much in the way of writing. They're very old. This is 500 BC or something like that. But we know a little bit about them, mostly because they come down to us filtered through Plato and Aristotle, who bash them. (laughs) You know, I mean, we have an account of them through these very biased observers who mostly want to refute them or demolish them. So one of these poor, unfortunate philosophers is Zeno, who we are told believed that change was impossible, that um, change is an illusion. We think we see things changing in the world, but our senses deceive us and you shouldn't trust your senses, according to Zeno. At least this is the maybe the straw man version of Zeno that we're being told. I have a feeling this is not, I don't know, maybe who knows what he really meant? But anyway, according to, to Aristotle, this is the kind of sophistry that Zeno was pushing. You shouldn't believe in change, so why not? Well, Zeno came up with several paradoxes to show that in situations where you think change is occurring, it couldn't possibly be occurring. And one of these paradoxes is today called the paradox of the arrow, which says that an arrow in flight is never moving. 
why not? So Zeno imagines, he, he considers two possibilities. Either space and time are discrete, meaning they're made of like smallest atomic units, that like there's a smallest possible interval of time and a smallest possible distance, or space and time are continuous, which means you could divide them as finely as you want. There's no limit to how fine you could go. Okay, so he, he has a few paradoxes to show that space and time being continuous can't possibly be right. Let's not go into those just now. And then he has these other paradoxes that are supposed to refute the alternative possibility that if space and time are discrete, that also doesn't make sense. And so the arrow is one of those paradoxes. And he says, if, if space and time are discrete, so like picture space being made up of tiny pixels. You know, that's something we're all used to with our digital cameras now, that you could imagine representing a, a scene with tremendous number, millions or billions of tiny pixels, with each having a color and an intensity and so on. And it, because they're so small, when you put them all together, everything looks smooth and continuous the way we're used to perceiving the world. So he says, Zeno says, suppose time is really like that, too, that it kind of goes click, click, click like a digital clock rather than smoothly sweeping around like an old-fashioned analog clock with its second hand going around smoothly. He says that nothing goes smoothly. Everything goes click, click, click in both space and time. And he says, if that's the case, then think about an arrow. You look at the arrow, and it appears to be flying through the air. But actually, ask yourself, when is it moving? You think it's moving, but when is it moving? Is it moving at one of these pixels of time? And the answer is no. At a pixel of time, no time is elapsing because there's the smallest possible unit of time. And at that time, it's wherever it is. It's occupying a certain number of pixels of space. And um, it's certainly not moving during that pixel of time. It's also not moving in between the pixels of time because there is nothing in between the pixels of time by definition. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, we're, we're hypothesizing time is pixelated like this. It's discrete. So that's it. I mean, at every instant, the arrow is motionless. So at every, at all instants, it's motionless. So it was never moving to begin with. It seems outlandish, but in the book, you talk about how if you boil it all the way down, this actually could be the case. Well, that's what's so weird, that according to modern physics, that is probably correct. You know, we don't, it's hard to believe. Well, actually, the conclusion is what's wrong. To say motion is impossible is wrong. It's just that motion isn't what we think it is. That is, it would appear, if you were looking at one of these digital representations of the arrow, that it would be here in one frame, and then in the next frame, it's somewhere else. And it's sort of like it materialized, a la Star Trek, you know, from here to there with no time passage in between. And apparently that is what happens in real life. We just don't see it that way because the gaps between the time intervals are so small. But the quantum physicists tell us that time is fundamentally discrete and so is space. And so is matter. And so probably it's sort of like what Zeno said. It's just that it's such small amounts of time. Just like you don't perceive when you watch a movie, you know, a movie going by at 30 frames a second or 60 frames a second. You don't see this as click, click, click from one frame to another. Your brain somehow averages over the successive frames and you see continuous and smooth motion. But yet you know it's not. Like in the old uh, Thomas Edison sort of kinemascopes or something where, or, or a flip book. You know, that kind of thing you can do with pages of a flip book. You can flip the pages and you see that the picture of, let's say, a horse running. It's just a series of snapshots, and it's not moving in between the pages. Yet, if you flip the pages fast enough, it looks like it's trotting along. In Infinite Powers, you discuss a fascinating story about how calculus led to a revolution in how we treat HIV in the mid-1990s. 
Can you walk us through this revolution and how differential equations provided the mathematical framework to help us better understand how the immune system fights HIV? It's a great story. It's, to me, it's one of the most compelling examples of where calculus has made a difference in the world. In, the, in this case, it really did save countless lives. So let me take us back to, I don't know, I'd suppose it'd be like the early 1990s. HIV has been ravaging the, the country in the U.S. for now about a decade. You know, there are people coming down with this mysterious illness, very disfiguring, horrible death. Um, no cure, no hope really for a cure at that point. We know it, in the 80s that there's some kind of virus that's causing this terrible disease. And we know that it's destroying the immune system of the person who's infected with it. But then there's a, this really weird aspect of it that a person gets infected and feels that they have sort of a bad cold or the flu for a while. They feel pretty sick, but then it goes away. Like for after two weeks or something, they feel better. And... Uh, they're not really showing any particular symptoms. If they go in and have a blood test, doctors at the, around this time start to realize that they can detect, you know, low T cell count. T cells being a very important component of the body's immune system. And so they see that there's that symptom, that something's happened to your T cell count. It's dangerously low, but you may not feel that sick otherwise. And um, this kind of state of just going on with low T cells can go for years, like up to 10 years, with no necessarily life-threatening symptoms, except that at some point, a person becomes extremely sick, starts to have opportunistic infections that wouldn't normally appear. They start getting infected with strange, rare diseases. They show weird kinds of cancers that don't, you know, you wouldn't normally see. And then at, once that has happened, this is a patient with full-blown AIDS, and then they usually live maybe if untreated, two or three years at the most after that. So it's the, the big mystery here is what is going on in these 10 years of being asymptomatic? You know, it, what's, because that would hold a clue to how we could try to treat people if we knew anything about, if we had treatments. You know, at this point in the early 90s, we don't really have many options. There was one drug that messed up one aspect of the virus's life cycle, but patients would very rapidly become resistant to that drug because the virus mutates very rapidly, and so it can escape the action of that drug. And so it, it just it, it really became a question for doctors, when should we give our patients the one drug that we have available? Should we give it as soon as they come down with these flu-like symptoms, you know, at the beginning of their disease? The downside of that being that then they'll very rapidly become immune or resistant to it, and then, you know, their life is going to probably be fairly short after that. Or should we wait, you know, let's let them have their 10 years of being asymptomatic. And then when they get really sick at the end, then we go hard with the one, you know, drug that we have. So th these are the kinds of questions doctors had. And, and the thinking at the time was wait until the near the end to avoid this onset of resistance. And what changed with the help of calculus in the early 90s was that this whole picture was put on its head the whole idea was turned upside down. Because we used to think that the virus was lying dormant in the body, that it was sort of hibernating. And, and viruses, some types of viruses are known to do that. People who have herpes, you know, they don't always have outbreaks all the time. The virus can just sit there in their nerve ganglia and not come out. Or the thing that causes shingles, you know, that's a chicken pox virus. You could have that for decades before you get shingles. So viruses do sometimes just lie dormant in parts of the body. And the thought was maybe that's what HIV was doing. 
But then where all of this changed was when a new kind of drug became available called protease inhibitors. And um, so a team led by Dr. David Ho, who's an AIDS researcher and a mathematical biologist, a great expert in calculus and differential equations, among other things, named Alan Perelson, teamed up with some other researchers to investigate what this new drug, what the protease inhibitors were actually doing, you know, and could they quantify its actions on the body? Um, and so what they found was that, you know, after getting a certain number of volunteers of these HIV-infected people, they were all men, I believe, in the study, they gave the men um, the protease inhibitor and then tracked the amount of virus in the bloodstream of these men. So that's a thing called the viral load, and they can measure that. And, and that there was an incredible exponential decrease in the amount of virus in the blood within just a matter of days after taking these protease inhibitors that somehow... The protease was making it so that the new virus particles produced by the virus that go on to infect other cells, they wouldn't be infectious. That is, a virus could make new particles, but they'd be duds. They wouldn't do anything to the cells. And so this was a way of stopping the virus in its tracks, it was thought. But the problem, of course, is that viruses are crafty, and they're going to mutate to become immune to the protease inhibitor too, or to resistant to it. So anyway, but, but first they just wanted to understand some of the like the math or the, the chemistry of what this protease inhibitor was doing. And this discovery that it was causing the virus level to drop exponentially fast was very informative to them because it told them something about a big unknown, which was, was the virus lying dormant or not? And what they discovered is that it was absolutely not lying dormant, that every day um, something like a billion virus particles were being produced in the bodies of these patients and a billion virus particles were being killed by the immune system. In other words, the picture that emerged from Ho and Perelson and, and team's work was that contrary to the idea that the virus was hibernating, in fact, it was in this all-out raging war with the immune system. And um, at every second of every day, the immune system was, was trying to keep HIV at bay. And so once we learned that there were a billion virus particles being produced and wiped out, in this stalemate between the body and the virus, that changed everything because now we knew that, um, that the best thing to do would be to try to stop the virus at the very beginning, not at the end. And then there was the question of how many drugs would it take to do that because any individual drug won't do it. Perelson's math explained why. It showed that essentially HIV could mutate fast enough even in just one day to, to start you know, changing its, its RNA or DNA to get um, resistant. Two drugs at the same time, the old drug plus the protease inhibitor, it would be much harder for HIV to undergo two simultaneous mutations to escape the action of the two drugs acting together. But still, Perelson's math showed that wouldn't be enough. But three drugs seemed to be the magic formula. The math with probability theory showed that the odds were something like one in a million that HIV could do the three simultaneous mutations to escape um, triple combination therapy, which is now a phrase that everybody knows because that became the standard of care. And Dr. David Ho became Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1996 for this work about giving the three-drug cocktails. So, you know, the thing was that, that the insight into the real mechanism of the virus and the immune system's reaction to it was elucidated only through this calculus-based argument. I haven't really gone into the math of it, but I think you get the flavor. Yeah, that's so amazing. I feel like I had some latent understanding of these like three-drug cocktails that it's, oh, the interaction effects of all three of them together do something to affect, but it's not really that. It's like the, the virus can't escape 
all three at the same time. That's the idea. Because the virus is replicating so fast and mutating so fast, and we now know that because of this first study of Perelson and Ho. Because it's going so fast and it replicates and copies itself in a very inaccurate way, you might think that's bad for the virus, but no, that's very good for the virus because by being so sloppy in its replication and mutating and making errors so much, it's trying new things all the time. And some of those are going to be successful at evading the immune system or the drugs. And so that's the the sinister thing that this virus does. It's trying everything all the time, literally everything. I mean, it's really trying. It's mutating every one of its bases many millions of times a day. That's what we now know because of this fast production of virus particles. So if you have any chance of stopping it from getting lucky, you have to hit it with three things at the same time. So it would have to get lucky in three different ways. And even though it's going very fast, three turns out to be too much for it to do. So, you know, I mean, just think about what a change this has had on the world, that um, it used to be almost invariably a death sentence. And today, for people who can afford the treatment or who have access to it, um, it's now a chronic, I mean, it's no fun to have, but it is a chronic condition that can be managed. And I have a friend who's HIV positive, and she has lived with this for many decades now. With side effects, let's not minimize it. I mean, this is this is not ideal. This is we can do better. We want to do better, but but she's had many years of happy life still that she wouldn't have had otherwise. It's such an interesting story. Let's let's transition away from infinite powers into some of your other work. You've explained that kind of a general thrust of your philosophy is this simple idea that math just is everywhere. Maybe you could give us a quick romp through some of your research, and maybe we could start with circadian rhythms. <laughs> well, sure. Um, yeah, we all spend um, several hours a day asleep. They talk about you spend a third of your life asleep. It's probably about right. You know, if you sleep eight hours a day, that's going to be a third of your life. So circadian rhythms refer to these um, roughly 24-hour rhythms that we have in our bodies of hormones going up and down, body temperature oscillating up and down alertness, you know, increasing as we're awake and then get tired at night. And anyway, we have all kinds of internal rhythms in cognition and in physiological function that people used to think were controlled by just the fact that the sun comes up and then goes down on a 24-hour cycle. But it's independent of the sun. We now know that, that we have biological clocks in us. And even if we didn't see the sun for weeks or months at a time, as has been done in certain experiments with people living in underground caves or in rooms with no windows or clocks, you know, soundproof, totally isolated from the outside world. Even in those kind of time-isolated conditions, our bodies keep on ticking with a 24-hour clock, which is kind of cool when you think of it that we grew up on a 24-hour planet that spins on its axis once every 24 hours. That's, you know, that's why a day is 24 hours long. The Earth rotates on its axis once every 24 hours. And so we and every other living thing on this planet, plants and animals alike, all grew up on a spinning globe, and somehow we've incorporated that spin or knowledge of that, ancient knowledge of that spin for billions of years in our cells. Uh, you know, isn't that crazy? It's is a spooky wild. thought? It's really yeah. spooky. Yeah. We, know where we, we know where we're from. We're from the Earth, and we've built a copy, kind of a little copy of the Earth's own spin. I don't mean that there's anything spinning, but we have some kind of chemistry, biochemistry, that in its own way mirrors the spin of the earth. The 24-hour day yeah. is just baked into us. Well, that's it. It's a weirdly spooky and weird thought, and yet it's true. And it's, it's a fantastic thing. It's true of, um, you know, the simplest creatures. Fruit flies have it. 
elephants have it, uh, you know, mammals. These are fancy things. But you can talk about even single-celled organisms. There's something called cyanobacteria, blue-green algae. They have it. This idea of clocks is really deep in living things on Earth. So anyway, we are among those creatures, and we have knowledge. Not, knowledge isn't the word, because it has nothing to do with cognition. I mean, our cells, like I say, know where they're from. And so we have these biological clocks in all of our cells, and um, they help us be awake and alert at the right time of day, which in the case of us means awake in the daytime. If we were creatures that wanted to be out at night scurrying around eating, you know, bugs or something, if we were a hand, like, you know, people who've had rodents <laughs> in their house, um, you know that the mice like to come out at night and scamper around. And um, or there are little, I don't know, is it hamster? Actually, hamsters are diurnal. If kids who have had hamsters, those hamsters get on their wheel and run around in the daytime. But I think there are other kinds of rodents that want to be up at night. I've had a few apartments with mice that infected, <laughs> and they seem to come out in the evenings. So. <laughs> right. So where's the math in all of this? Uh, is a question my mother used to ask me, too, because I did my Ph.D. on sleep research, and she said, what's all this about sleep? I thought you were interested in math. But there's a lot of math in sleep, and um, where it especially becomes noticeable is under these peculiar conditions I mentioned earlier where you ask someone, some brave volunteer, to live for weeks or months without knowing what time it is. It's a pretty weird condition to be in. You know, you go in a room. It has no windows. It's in a hospital somewhere. It's totally soundproofed. You can't hear the sirens coming of the, as the ambulances, you know, drive into the hospital. It's just like a kind of sensory deprivation, except you still have your senses, but you are time-deprived. You don't know what time it is. It's a pretty interesting thing. You might wonder, why did anyone ever do such a study? Um, they started in the 1960s when NASA was concerned about what would happen to the astronauts when they were up in space and weren't on our spinning planet anymore. You know, the guys up there in Space Lab or whatever we call it. Is that what we call it? What's that thing called? The space station. Anyway, <laughs> we may have to become aware of it. What's the name of that thing? <laughs> Our producer, Harrison, in the booth is telling us it's the ISS, the International Space Station. Yeah, the International Space Station. Starbase, too. <laughs> right. In the 60s, when we were thinking about going to the moon and then later maybe even going to other planets, it became an aspect of um, human biology that suddenly became interesting. How would astronauts take to not knowing or not living on a spinning planet? Would it matter? Could they even survive? You know, like we didn't know if someone up there might die because they don't see the sun coming up every day. Or Anyway, so there were studies about what would happen to people under these conditions, but you'd do it on Earth rather than in space. And the best way to simulate it was to put someone deep underground in a cave, you know, reason, with a reasonable temperature in the cave, hopefully, or, or in better conditions in one of these special facilities in a hospital. And so the interesting results that came out of those kind of studies were that when people didn't know what time it was, they started to drift and stay up a little bit later every day. They wouldn't keep to a 24-hour day exactly. They would um, often show patterns closer to 25 hours in their sleep-wake cycle, or even sometimes, strangely, much longer than that, and go to 30 or 40. There are even some cases of people living on like 45 or 48-hour days, meaning they get up once every two days, and they sleep for a long time. And what's really strange about these experiments is that it doesn't occur to them. They don't feel that they're staying up a long time. They don't feel like they're pulling an all-nighter. And they only ask for three meals a day, except a day is now 48 hours. So the subjects in these studies often start losing weight because they don't also think of eating more either. They just eat their normal amount, and they still only eat three times per subjective day. But because they're only eating half as much, 
their pants start to get loose and they say, there's something wrong with the food you're bringing me. And it's probably the easiest diet that's ever been invented <laughs> because you don't perceive any hardship at all, yet you're losing weight. So that's, that's a very peculiar thing. The sense of time is not necessarily what we think it is. But anyway, so that's one kind of strange thing that would happen in these studies. But even stranger is that the internal rhythms of body temperature and hormone fluctuations, those keep on ticking at very close to 24 hours. It's the sleep-wake cycle that runs on its own rhythm, but it's sort of divorced or uncoupled from the internal autonomous rhythms of you know, body functions. And so this was really unexpected, and it's, it's a condition that's now called internal desynchronization, where your sleep-wake rhythm is out of sync with your wow. hormone rhythms. Yeah, and intuition other. would tell me it's all the same system. Yeah. It's all, yeah. People didn't even really know that we had these two different systems. Like, you hear sleep, and a lot of people think sleep and circadian rhythms are the same thing, and they're not. Sleep is one circadian rhythm, one thing that has a 20. By the way, that word, in case anyone wants to know, it's really from two Latin words, circa, around, and dien a day. So circadian is really how we should be pronouncing it if we want to be, you know. <laughs> circadian rhythm. <laughs> yeah. So there's some, there's some kind of hoity-toity people who will say circadian rhythm because that would be what you'd say in Latin. But anyway, nobody says it that way except for them. It's circadian rhythms. But anyway, um, this idea that you could internally desynchronize your sleep cycle from your body temperature or other internal cycles, totally unexpected. And it led to a lot of weird phenomena. And so in my PhD work, I was using math to analyze some of the extremely bizarre stuff. Like sometimes people would sleep for 20 hours straight. And I'm sure no matter how tired you've been or what marathon you've run, you never slept 20 hours. You might have slept 15 hours. That'd be very, very long. Nobody sleeps for 20 straight hours. But these people did. And they weren't even necessarily staying up that long. So what was going on? There was a lot of weird stuff that with math and statistics, I tried to analyze and explain. Uh, maybe we could talk about it more, but maybe that gives you the flavor. Yeah, thank you, thank you. You've published an influential paper on small world networks, which was a collaboration with Duncan Watts, who I believe was your student at the time. Can you walk us through that research and how it's been applied? Mm-hmm. Yes, that research tends to be what people often associate with me because it's been cited some unbelievable number of times and I will never have a home run like that paper. <laughs> yeah. It's 1998, by the way, yeah, for the listeners. Yeah. Right, 1998 in Nature magazine. Duncan Watts, a uh, big strapping Australian guy, was in the defense force there. He looked like a Green Beret, you know. And I remember first seeing him walking around in my building in the, the department with a like a muscle shirt on, thinking, this guy is not a, how does it, this, he can't know any math at all, <laughs> but, which just goes to show you about stupid prejudices, yeah. you know because he turned out to be a great great student and super creative, really had a good knack for asking questions. So the, the term you're using, small world, is supposed to remind people of this experience we've all had where you meet someone at a party and you start talking and then pretty soon you find out that you have some friend in common or, you know, your sister went to camp with that person's cousin or, you know, something like that. And then people invariably say, oh, it's a small world. So this phenomenon that we're all connected through just a, you know, there's this other phrase that's used too, six degrees of separation, that um, expresses the idea that you could take any two people on Earth 
and there is some chain of acquaintances that connects them, that I know someone who knows someone who knows someone. Who knows Kevin Bacon. <laughs> There's also the, that. There's yeah, the six yeah. degrees of Kevin Bacon if it's with Hollywood and, and with actors and movies. So anyway, this, this kind of idea that, that social networks of people, and I don't mean Facebook, Twitter type, so I mean real social networks of real people knowing each other in in meat space, I guess we now call it, right? You ever hear that term? I actually have not heard oh, that Oh, okay. Meat yeah, so there's there's online, which is cyberspace, uh, and then there's where we're sitting right now, face-to-face. That's meat space. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean meat like I want to meet yes. you. I mean meat like I'm made of meat and so are you. But anyway, so social networks in real life have this funny property that, that we're all much more closely connected than we would think. And that's why it's so counterintuitive and startling, and we are led to slap our foreheads and say, oh, it's a small world. But, you know, if you think about it, at one level, it cannot be surprising. It happens to all of us so often. There must be some explanation for this. I mean, this can't be a coincidence. It's a very commonplace phenomenon. So clearly our intuition is wrong, and we don't have a good understanding of how our social networks are connected. And so at around the time that Duncan and I started to work together, this was a in the pop culture. The movie with Will Smith, Six Degrees of Separation, had just come out. People were talking about it. There was a play a few years earlier by John Guare with the same title. He's the one who invented the phrase. And um, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon was an extremely popular parlor game that was all the rage in 1996 after the guys who invented it, three fraternity brothers from Albright College in Pennsylvania. These three probably inebriated when they invented the game. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they went on the John Stewart show, which at the time was on MTV, um, and started playing this game with John Stewart. You know, he's supposed to name an actor. They would find a connection between that actor and Kevin Bacon through movies. Okay. Anyway, so it was in the pop culture, the idea of small worlds. But what was not understood is why is this happening? What's the mathematical explanation for why this is so common? And then Duncan had this idea that um, actually this is not just a trivial parlor game. This might be really important because what if, for instance, the brain cells that are letting us have this conversation right now or have conscious thoughts, what if brain cells are connected in the same kind of small world way? I mean, this was something you hear neuroscientists say, that every cell in the brain is only a few synapses away from every other cell. Right. Okay, that instead of handshakes or people becoming friends, I can send a signal from any cell out of the well, I believe, let's see, the, the number that's often given is 100 billion cells in the brain. Um, in the literal meat space of your head. In the literal <laughs> meat space of your head, 100 billion neurons. Yeah, it's an interesting number. I mean, so there's something like on the order of 10 billion people on Earth, not quite yet, but, you know, to the nearest factor of 10. It's more than a billion. It's around getting close to 10 billion. Brain cells, another factor of 10, 100 billion. And each one is thought to make something like... 10,000 connections onto other cells. So what am I trying to say? It's 10,000 times 100 billion. That's a big number of synapses. So anyway, the point being that there's a lot of connections in the brain and a lot of cells, and yet it might be that every cell is only a few hops, like six or seven hops from every other cell, and this may be why it's so possible for the brain to do the amazing things that it does, even though it's made of meat, you know? Your pancreas can't do all that. (laughs) But um, your brain can. Anyway, okay, fine. So we don't really understand that. But anyway, Duncan went on to say, fine, you know, like maybe thinking about things connected in this remarkable way would tell us something about functioning of nervous systems. It might tell us about spread of epidemics, because remember we were talking about HIV. 
Um, that was still certainly very much on everybody's mind and other epidemics too, uh, other diseases. Well, a saying that was common at the time is that when you sleep with someone, you're not just sleeping with them, you're also sleeping so with everyone, everyone they slept with. Okay, so that's the, sa that's the epidemiological version of six degrees of separation. And so this whole concept of, oh, I'm not in a high-risk group, so I shouldn't worry, you know, it's a stupid idea because you're sleeping with someone who might be sleeping with someone, and you're always closer to, quote, high-risk groups than you think. And also, you can't necessarily tell what group you're in. You, no one, everyone you know might seem like they're in a low-risk group, and yet you can't see very far out into the network. It's just in the nature of these networks. That's why we have such lousy intuition, and we're so surprised about the small world phenomenon. So anyway, we, we tried to think about it very abstractly, mathematically, what what kinds of networks would have this property that everyone's only a few handshakes from everyone else? And what would be the implications of that for the spreading of anything that can spread on the network, whether it's information or a disease or contagion in the banking system? You know, you hear about that all the time nowadays with if this bank or this insurance company or reinsurance company collapses, it will have, we call it cascading failures, contagion. It's the same idea. You know, in other words, Duncan's vision was this seemingly ridiculous question about actors in the Kevin Bacon game is the question at the heart of all of modern science, whether it's economics or finance or neuroscience or epidemiology. It's all about big networks and the things that propagate on them. And so you could see why, if you buy this vision, this starts to sound like an important thing for scientists and mathematicians to think about. And so we were the first ones to pose it that way, and um, that definitely caught on. That's so interesting. It, it takes math to abstract it and yeah. then reapply it to well, that's, a bunch of new situations. Yes, that's right. And so back to our earlier little discussion about Picasso's lie that tells the truth or helps us realize the truth, I think the small world example is a good one, that we made a model of what was going on in small worlds that was definitely a lie. It wasn't a realistic model of social networks or of epidemic spreading or of banking failures. It was a lie for sure. It was very oversimplified. And yet, it contained the germ, the essence of the key idea. And that's what we love to do in math. We like to find the essence of the phenomenon and um, leave the details to the specialists in those different domains. So we're sort of like the birds flying way overhead, looking down at the landscape, or like the impressionist painter who's looking far back. And true, if you zoom in, you start to see it's nothing but dots. But from a distance, we start to see features that for the people who have their face pressed too close to the canvas, you know, they, maybe they can't quite see what's really going on. There was a 2014 article in The Atlantic about a mathematics course you developed at Cornell. The course is aimed at students who despise math. <laughs> um, I understand that your goal is to get students to, quote, make math or have a so-called mathematical moment. What does that really mean? And can you take us through the structure of the class? Yeah, there's an article in The Atlantic that you mentioned that was written by Jessica Leahy, who asked me about this class. I had just started the class in 2014, I think it was, when um, she heard about it. I was on Twitter, and I mentioned something about how I was excited to try teaching this new class in a new style. I had never taught a class where I wasn't lecturing. You know, that's the conventional way we teach is the professor lectures. The students write stuff down in notebooks or type it nowadays. And... Um, I had been doing that for pretty close to 30 years, and with students who are really into math, uh, future physicists or mathematicians or engineers, you can get away with that style of lecturing, and they already know that they love the subject or they're devoted to it for professional reasons. 
But there's a lot of people that we teach who are not necessarily there because they want to be engineers or technical people. They, they often, well, let me just say it, they, they have to be there. They're being told you have to take math for some reason that someone else has decided or maybe for no reason. You just have to take it. <laughs> and that doesn't make for a great situation for the teacher or the student. And yet, I feel like we're giving people a gift when we show them math, just like if someone helped me understand music or art. That's a nice thing. That will enrich my life if I get that, you know. And I think math is that way, too. I think it's a gift if I can help someone understand math and its place in our culture and in understanding the world. So I want to share that. But the conventional way of teaching doesn't seem to achieve that goal for many of these students. So I'm thinking here of liberal arts students who might be primarily interested in art history or government or sociology or something like that. And um, at Cornell, we, in the College of Arts and Sciences and several of our other colleges, have a requirement that at one time was called the math and quantitative reasoning requirement. You have to take some, some exposure to math or quantitative reasoning before you can graduate. It's just something every educated person should know, we think. But not too much of it is necessary, just this one course. So what do you do in that course? And so what I thought might work better than lecturing is let the students actually do math. Now, what does that mean? You know, like do a lot of arithmetic problems or do algebra? Because remember, these are often math-phobic. These are people with math anxiety. They don't want to be in this class. Um, so what do you do with them still? No, to do math means to solve puzzles, to become engaged, to, to really be curious about something and want to solve it and be determined. Now, you could ask why would anyone care about that, but that's not really... If you think about it, people do crossword puzzles because it's fun. And why do they keep at it? Because they want to solve it. Why do they want to solve it? I don't know. People like to want to, they just want to solve puzzles. That's so true with Sudoku. I think of all the people playing Tetris. I mean, these are all kind of mathematical things. We don't think of them as math, but they are because they rely on patterns and structure and trying to decode something or make something fit or even jigsaw puzzles. People do puzzles for, because they are fun when they're not being judged on how they did or when there's not any time pressure. A lot of basic video games are structured all around a puzzle. Absolutely. There's something about the quest and wanting order, wanting to make sense of something or make it work out. People find it very satisfying, and it's fun. So I thought the course should be in that spirit because a lot of math is fun in that way. And so we in this course do a lot of um, activities where I have the students sit at tables and work on problems. Often it looks a little like a Montessori school. You know, they have scissors and crayons and paper, and it's very hands-on, literally hands-on. Sometimes I bring in Cheez-It crackers. I ask them to make patterns out of this little square crackers. So um, it's meant to be palpable, but that's not the only thing. Sometimes we stand up. We did some exercises about dance. I don't mean any complicated dance. I just mean rather than using crackers or scissors or paper, we can play with the shapes of our own limbs and bodies. And you can explore symmetry. Like, you know, the left side of your body looks sort of like the mirror image of your right side. Or your right hand looks like, a, if you put it up in the mirror, it looks like a left hand. So our own bodies have symmetries in them. And in a lesson on symmetry, the students will stand up and make poses, either symmetrical or asymmetrical. And um, through the activity of sort of asking if I'm in mirror symmetry to you, and then you're in rotational symmetry to the third person behind you, what symmetry relationship do I have to the third person? That is, we do what in math we would call composition of symmetries. And it's the beginning of a very advanced branch of math called group theory, 
which is the branch of math used to understand fundamental particles in quantum physics or um, in general, the language of symmetry is expressed in group theory. So permutations of a Rubik's cube. Maybe. Yeah, that's a perfect example. Right. Yes, absolutely. What makes a Rubik's cube hard to solve is that it has a very complicated group of symmetries. And so by doing these kinds of exercises, the students come face to face with group theory. And what's really remarkable is they start to discover the basic principles of group theory by themselves. I don't have to give them a textbook or a lecture. It's just so natural that if you ask the right questions, they discover things. And the goal is not so much to discover the basics of group theory. It's to have the experience of working on a puzzle that makes sense to you, struggling with it, learning how to solve things when you're stuck. That's a pretty valuable skill in life. You know, forget about math class. Just when you're stuck, what do you do to get unstuck? Whether you're a writer or an architect or, you know, a business person, whatever, you have to find a way around an obstacle. And so this is a chance to exercise our tenacity and resourcefulness to find ways of getting unstuck and, and also creativity. So anyway, that's what I see the class as, as being about. It's not so much to teach math as to teach um, problem solving and analytical reasoning, but also creative leaps, all of that. All of those things go into math, and so this is what it's all about. It turns out it really works. The students find it very uplifting, and they think, if this was what math is, I would have liked math. And, and what's really sad about it to me is that this is what math is like. This is actually math. Sometimes they say, this class is not really math class. This class is fun. You know, I'm having a great time in here, but this isn't really math. And I think, no, you got it exactly backwards. This is what math really is. The reason we're mathematicians, those of us who are, is because this is what we do all day. That stuff they made you do in high school, that is not math. That's some kind of weird monkey, you know, a trained chimp act where you're being forced to pat your stomach and rub your head according to some arbitrary rule that someone has given you that actually makes sense if they would tell you, but they don't because they're in a big rush to get you ready for the SATs. And so it, it comes off as just, like I say, a kind of circus act that is meaningless and no wonder people hate math. If they don't see what it's about, of course, it's pretty detestable. I can think back to all these rules about like, this is how you do sine, this is how you do tangent, this is the cosine, without the explanation of what they actually <laughs> That's are. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Now, you know, a lot of kids like math. I, I don't want to go all negative on this because some people really do like it. But I think it's usually either because they got what it's about or they were just, for some reason, good at solving the puzzles. And so it was reinforcing and it was satisfying for them. But for the people who felt lost, and almost everyone does feel lost at some point, it can be very discouraging and, and even um, like sort of destructive to the ego. A lot of people come away. That's why they get traumatized. They feel, I'm stupid. I can't do math. I'm not smart. I'm worthless. And unfortunately, um, these things last for a long time. And it's really unnecessary because making mistakes and getting stuck is, a, is an essential part of every creative endeavor, and it's definitely part of math. And it's no cause for alarm or to start thinking you're stupid. It's just part of the game. You're going to get stuck. And you just have to learn how to fight your way around it. But anyway, oh. <laughs> it's, really a, it's really a sad thing. I mean, you hear me um, feeling exasperated and, and saddened because here's this beautiful thing that I know and that my colleagues and I love. And it feels like it gets really distorted and um, transfigured. And it, it's perverted. It's crazy how, how math can be made so unlikable when it's so lovable. I don't want to blame the teachers. I mean, they're trying hard. They have a lot of constraints on them. They've also been brought up through a system that did that to them to a large extent. I'm not trying to put the blame in any particular place. I just feel like it's a pity 
that it's so hard to convey the, the beauty and pleasure and importance of math to so many people who would really appreciate it if exposed to it in the right way. I don't think we've mentioned it. When can our listeners expect to uh, be able to buy your book, Infinite Powers, How Calculus Reveals the Secrets of the Universe? The um, publication date is April 2nd of 2019, so that means it'll be released then. I see that it's already up on Amazon and probably a few other websites, so if anyone wanted to pre-order it, they could. But yeah, I, I can't wait till it comes out. It's going to be fun. I hope there are some readers out there who will enjoy learning what calculus is really all about. It's exciting. And is there anywhere else people can go to find out more about you? Ha! Huh. <laughs> well, I don't know what should they're... We, should we be following you anywhere? <laughs> I do have a website. Um, that's the part of me that I guess I'm comfortable revealing to the okay. world, which um, you can find at, I think if you just Google or Bing me or whatever, Stephen Strogatz, that website will pop up right away, stephenstrogatz.com. Do you have a Twitter handle? Oh, and I do have a Twitter handle, yes. That's also Stephen Strogatz, one word. And yeah, I love uh, Twitter, actually. I find that I can connect to lots of high school and elementary school teachers or just people in the broader public who are curious about math. I tend to mainly tweet about math and its connections to the world and uh, don't really do much about myself or about politics or any of the other things that you might find on Twitter. I think for some people it might be refreshing to just have a place where they can come and get away from a lot of that other stuff. Professor Strogratz, thank you so much for being a guest on Present Value. This was really an outstanding conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Michael. Great to be with you. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team. Harrison Joe, Caroline Wright, Chris Alberico, Serena Elavia, Bernardo Espinoza, James Feld, Jack Moriarty, and Jonathan Tin. I'm your host for this episode, Michael Brady. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz, music by Poddington Bear, logo by Kalechi Pomongo, and special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.